1: Hello, and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Couquier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show. RNA technology and vaccines are improving millions of lives around the world. Could it be game-changing for vital crops?
2: You spray it on fields, and as they munch your leaf, they're going to be munching some of these RNA molecules, and that's going to disrupt their protein production, and they're going to die.
1: None of this would be possible without a breakthrough in genetic sequencing. We'll
3: talk to one of the pioneers. Today, there are systems that will sequence several trillion letters of DNA in a single experiment. And a new way to screen for COVID-19.
4: Two dogs can easily screen 300 people coming off a flight within half an hour.
1: First, plant pests are one of the biggest threats to global food security. Today, about one third of crops are lost to these insects. For the last century, farmers have sprayed synthetic pesticides onto their fields to reduce this threat. Although this is effective, pesticides are toxic and may cause health problems for people. They can also have unintended effects on other species in the fields where they're used. And like antibiotics, the overuse of pesticides can cause resistance. Scientists have come up with a new approach by using the same molecule that we've heard a lot about during the pandemic, RNA.
2: The way to understand this is to start from the kind of RNA that is used in the in the COVID-19 vaccines that are made by BioNTech slash Pfizer and Moderna. That is called messenger RNA. Hal Hudson is a correspondent for The Economist. And it does what it says in the tin, in a way, it delivers a message to the cells in your body telling them to produce the same protein that is found on the surface of the coronavirus. None of the rest of the virus gets produced inside you, just that protein. And when your cells make that protein, as instructed by that messenger RNA molecule in the vaccine, your immune system sees it and starts to produce antibodies for it. And so if the real virus ever arrives in your system, you are ready, you are prepared, you have some immunity against it, and that's a good thing. What we're talking about here is a different use of RNA molecules, which is called RNA interference. And what this does is it disrupts the journey between DNA and protein production. In the middle of that is a whole bunch of different RNAs, shuttling information back and forth from your gene into the protein that that gene encodes for. And RNA interference uses a different kind of RNA called double-stranded RNA in order to send a message to the genetic circuit in a pest to get it to stop producing a protein that is essential to that pest's ongoing biological function. So instead of killing pests with chemicals that can kill all kinds of other stuff, you're killing pests with something that only kills them. How interesting. So what species might benefit from these RNA pesticides? Pretty much any species that humans rely on that has a pest. For instance, honeybees. Honeybees! Tell me how that would work. Yeah, so these bees are plagued by a pest called the Varroa mite, which is a horrible little thing that attaches itself to their bodies and basically sucks the fat out of the inside of their bodies and spreads viruses and diseases around at the same time. So no one likes varroa mites, horrible things. And the problem with killing varroa mites is that their life cycle has evolved to take place inside the bee's own hive, right next to the bee's own babies. The female varroa crawls into one of those honeycomb cells that you see in the pictures and lays eggs right next to the baby bee eggs. And then a nurse bee comes along and actually caps the cell with beeswax to seal the bee babies in there with these pests. And so this makes it very, very difficult to kill them because the pests are growing up when they're most vulnerable, sealed safe inside a beeswax cocoon with the thing that they prey upon. And so normal pesticides, it's just very difficult to get to them at that point. But this is where the RNA comes in. So how do you use RNA to do the
1: job of a pesticide?
2: In practice, you do not go around injecting mites with RNA molecules to interfere with their protein production. That would be too expensive. But what you do instead is you feed it to the bees themselves. If you can get the RNA to the varroa mites when they are at that larval stage in the bee hive in the cell next to the baby bees, then you can kill them how do you do this? You feed the RNA that is targeted to the varroa mites. You feed it to the bees themselves. You feed it to the bees that are looking after the bee babies. It does nothing to the bees. It just sits in their digestive system. And then when those bees who have eaten the RNA kind of uh, chuck it up into what's known as brood food, which they also leave in that capped cell with those baby bees in eggs, Uh, they're also chucking up this RNA that's targeted at the mites. And when the mites wake up, they eat the brood food just like the baby bees do. They ingest the RNA and they die. And so it's like a sneaky way to take advantage of the life cycle and the ecology of the bees and the mites to get this essentially targeted genetic poison just to the mites.
1: And if we wanted to do this in the wild, would we just spray the fields with this RNA gloop?
2: Yeah. So outside of beehives, which are kind of a special case, and the reason varroa mites are so difficult to get rid of is because of that life cycle where it's all inside the hive. It's very difficult to get the more broad pesticides that kill lots of things. You can't get them in there without also killing the bees. So it's a problem. If you want to control other pests, you spray it on fields and you put it on there in such a way that the pests you want to die eat. As they munch your leaf, they're also going to be munching some of these RNA molecules and that's going to disrupt their protein production and they're going to die. And just to be clear, the RNA molecules for, say, a Colorado potato beetle are completely different than the RNA molecules for a varroa mite. In each case, the RNA molecules are targeted to a specific gene in the specific organism in order to disrupt it and its protein production and kill just it.
1: This is great. So the point here is that it's targeted to a specific pest. If we're going to have not just RNA medications, but also RNA pesticides, what are some of the disadvantages of that?
2: A disadvantage for a long time has been cost. One of the bosses of one of the companies in Kansas told me that, you know, when they started, the RNA was like tens of thousands of dollars a gram. Uh, In 2014, it was hundreds of dollars a gram. And now it's sort of dollars a gram. So the cost has come down massively. One of the big, big problems with using RNA as a pesticide is that it degrades really quickly outside of the body. ultraviolet light from the sun hits it, just the wind and the rain, it all just destroys the molecule and then it doesn't work anymore. The message is gone. You've lost your encoding. And so one of the ways to get around that, the easiest brute force way, is just to make loads more of it. And if it's really expensive, then you can't have a really, really expensive biotech product. But now that the cost has come down, there's a bunch of companies, three different ones in America at least, that are now starting to do this. And all of them say that they can make RNA to do this genetic interference at dollar per gram kind of costs, which is low enough.
1: Hal, as it goes for pests, so it may go for people... Have you thought about the bioterrorism implication for this?
2: I asked the bosses of the companies about this concern. It seems like a fairly straightforward logical leap. If I can design a molecule that disrupts protein production of a required protein in a pest, why can't I do it in a human? And you can potentially do it in a human. One big caveat is that humans are way more complicated than insects in terms of the kinds of information flows within their cells. And so it's probably not as straightforward to sequence my genome and to find a protein production target in me as it is to do it in a pest. That's one thing. But... The, if you did this to a person, if you found a way to get a bunch of RNA molecules designed for a specific person, if you could tailor it to that point, and it's an open question whether you can. Remember that the RNA molecules and the pesticides, they're targeting whole kinds of insects, whole species. So it's a broader target. You need to find a gene that's common to all of the potato beetles or whatever it is. But it seems plausible, at least, to think about whether you might be able to target individuals, because we do all have unique genomes. And could you do some terrorism in this way? It seems like you you plausibly could. But it's nowhere near there yet. But it's probably the kinds of thing that bioethicists are already thinking about.
1: Hal, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. To find the RNA molecule that will inhibit the crucial protein production of the varroa mites, researchers first need to understand the pest's genome. In order to find an organism's genome, scientists need to sequence its DNA, which decrypts its genetic code. The result is a long string of nucleotides, represented by the letters G, C, A, and T, that reveal information about how the organism works. In the 1990s, an international consortium called the Human Genome Project set about sequencing the first complete strand of human DNA. It was a hugely laborious process, but the work of two scientists at the University of Cambridge transformed sequencing into a faster, cheaper, and simpler task.
3: The method that David Klanerman and I started thinking about in the mid-1990s, which has evolved into this next-generation sequencing, you get enormous speed and capacity and cost advantage compared to the old method.
1: Sir Shankar Bala is a professor of medicinal chemistry at the University of Cambridge. In the late 1990s, he and his colleague, David Kletterman, designed a new type of sequencing machine. This month, they won the prestigious Millennium Prize for their role in the innovation of this technology.
3: Around 2006, the genome analyzer could sequence a billion letters of DNA in a single experiment. As compared to going back when we started the project around 97, the state of the art was of the order of hundreds of thousands of letters per experiment. In early 2007, a company Illumina took over the uh, technology in the company and continued advancing and engineering it. So today, there are systems that will sequence several trillion letters of DNA in a single experiment. So this is more like a million to 10 million fold advancement compared to how things were in the late 90s.
1: How about the cost of sequencing? How far has that fallen because of this technology?
3: Well, um, the, the cost of the very first human genome in the Human Genome Project was of the order of a billion US dollars, And this project took about 10 years. Today's systems, the high-end systems that use our technology, will sequence one human genome per hour instead of 10 years. And the cost of a genome has fallen to below 1,000 US dollars. And there's every expectation that it will get even lower over time.
1: Now, this technology is already being used in biology and in medicine, including sequencing SARS-CoV-2. But is there anything in particular that's been surprising that either now how it's being used or in the future that you can imagine that people are talking about?
3: Well, um, the, the biggest surprise to me has been the creativity and breadth of applications dreamt up by users in basic research. So I would say in terms of surprises, one area that's clinically focused is um, it turns out that cancer cells necrose, they die and they leak their DNA contents into the bloodstream. So if you take a blood draw from a patient and you sequence in great depth all the DNA fragments that are floating around in that blood sample, you can look at that data and look for patterns of mutations in the DNA that commonly occur in cancers. And so there are a number of organizations and academic research groups who have shown that you can detect cancer through a simple blood draw with very high sensitivity and specificity. So I think this is something that wasn't on the horizon 10 years ago. So that's a great example of the
1: ability to detect something that we couldn't do before using a less invasive mechanism. But 20 years ago, people were talking about sequencing as the pathway leading to personalized medicine. Yet it seems like we're not there yet. Would you agree with that? And if so, why is that?
3: Well, 20 years ago, we were just at the brink of seeing what the very first human genome looked like in terms of its structure, the specifics of all the protein coding genes, and so forth. So that was really the beginning What's needed is probably another 10 to 20 years to sequence more patients and more cases and build up data and information that links genomic information with sort of classical patient healthcare information. And I think as data sets get large and complex, um, there is a role to play for machine learning and AI techniques sifting through these complex data sets and pulling out valuable information. So what I would say is that um, in terms of personalized genomic medicine, it's looking very promising and we are really in the very early stages of finding out the full extent of what will be possible. Professor Bala Subramanian, thank you very much. It's a
0: pleasure. Thank you. Since the coronavirus first
1: emerged, mass testing has proved troublesome. PCR tests, which have to be analyzed in a lab, are the gold standard. But because of this process, they take time to provide a result. Some countries, like Britain, now rely on rapid lateral flow tests for asymptomatic mass testing programs. These can provide a result in around half an hour, but they've been criticized for the potential false positive or negative results. As borders reopen for the summer months, it's clear that a new way of mass screening for the virus is necessary to avoid importing cases and new variants. Some scientists are looking less at technological solutions and more towards man's best friend.
4: The dogs are up to 94% reliable in sensitivity, so their ability to detect COVID-19, even if it's asymptomatic. Claire Guest is the
1: chief scientific officer and chief executive of Medical Detection Dogs, a charity that's working with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and the University of Durham on using dogs to sniff out COVID-19.
4: Medical Detection Dogs has been researching for over 10 years now the ability of dogs to detect human disease by odour. Now, you know, it sounds quite remarkable, but of course, dogs have got this incredible sense of smell. They've got up to 350 million sensory receptors dedicated to olfaction. If you can smell a teaspoon of sugar in a cup of tea, a dog could smell a teaspoon of sugar in the equivalent of the amount of water held in two Olympic-sized swimming pools. Now, we've all got our unique odour, but what we didn't know until more recently is that when we have any disease or condition, that seems to change our odour. And that dogs, with their incredible sense of smell and being highly trainable, can be trained to recognise these differences.
1: Okay. And your study did what exactly?
4: What we did is actually we collected socks. So people were consented and they wore socks. Some were COVID-positive people, and then there were a large number of controls or people with other diseases and conditions. And the first small group exercise, we were looking to see whether the dogs seemed to be able to recognize any difference. And we quite quickly saw that they were. So we went to the second phase, which was the training phase, um, followed by a double blind um, study.
1: Now, is using socks a suitable proxy for someone who may have COVID and that being the odor that they would give out?
4: Research has shown us that the feet are particularly good at at giving off odour and these socks um, have been researched by the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. There's been an incredibly good matrix for holding volatiles, those smelly smelly molecules that float around the air. Now these volatiles are captured in these socks in this matrix and they are held quite stably until they're then um, taken out again to be um, presented to a dog. So with the odor that the dog has learned to identify as unique to COVID nineteen.
1: Now, has the has the paper been reviewed by outside experts?
4: So the paper has gone has been submitted for review. So we're at preprint stage uh, currently at the, at the moment. So um, we're we'll be awaiting the um, reviewers' comments. But one thing I would say is the reason why we've taken um, some time to get you know, the study complete and the results done is because we're very keen to do a very robust. Um, proof of uh, principal trial we actually consented over three and a half thousand patients in total for the study and trained and tested six dogs
1: so there were six dogs that were in the trial that you had tested and trained were there a larger group at the outset but those but there were only six that could actually perform to a high standard
4: all the dogs that we trained got through to the test, bar one, and that is a dog that was doing the work, but perhaps wasn't quite so reliable. So the, the, the best six dogs went for, for testing. It isn't something every dog can do. Um, detector dogs are, have a t- particular sort of temperament and personality. Um, the sort of dog that... If you had a you know were throwing a tennis ball and you threw it into the long grass a hundred times and the dog couldn't see it but had to use its nose, that you'd throw it a hundred times and the dog would come back for a hundred more. That that's the sort of dog you need. Very high drive and very sort of passionate about their work.
1: Now the results are positive, but it's still a relatively small number of people that have been tested. Are you working on larger studies?
4: The next stage in a way is even more interesting because what we're doing, we've got ten dogs working in this manner now is they're actually working on shirts that were worn by people um, from the same cohort. And the shirts are being worn, and these dogs are actually learning to identify the odour of COVID on a shirt worn by someone. So having taught the dog the odour, we're saying, actually, what we'd like you to do is find it on a person, a static person to start with, and now a moving person. And we've actually got some lovely work where dogs are able to move, uh, either move down a line of people themselves or have the people walk past them. And as soon as they smell somebody with the COVID odor, then they they stop and identify and, and, and alert that they've, they've they've smelled this odor.
1: Now, if this technique is approved, where do you see this sort of thing being used?
4: The modelers have worked very hard to identify places where the dogs can have the greatest impact. Now, two dogs can um, easily screen three hundred people coming off of a flight within half an hour. There's no other test that could do it so rapidly. Now. What we need to do is identify where the dogs can make the biggest impact.
1: Are there any questions about how these people will be picked out at, at the airport? This will be different than when dogs smell for drugs or for for criminal behavior like terrorism.
4: In a way, it doesn't look dissimilar. Um, the dog moves through uh, along the line and um, simply um, stops and stares at the individual uh, if, if they're COVID positive now, of course, we're still not at the at the position yet where we have discussed either with um, government or, or border force whether or not this would be something that they want to scale up to that level. What we're quite clear about is, you know, the dog isn't going to um, become the the only diagnostic test, and all the dogs will work with PCR. Interestingly, the results that are being published have indicated that dogs are much more reliable than the LFT. Doctor Guest. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good to meet you.
1: It's important to remember that this study is just research in a laboratory environment and it has not yet undergone peer review. It still has a long way to go before it can be deployed at events or in airports, if it ever may. Thank you for listening to Babbage, and thanks to all of you who wrote in about air pollution in your cities based on our previous episode. Massimo in Rome, Joan in Toronto, and Ian in Montreal all noted that the eastern parts of those cities are poorer than the western parts. Thank you for your insightful analysis. And if you enjoy Babbage, why not take out a subscription to The Economist? You can find an introductory offer by heading to economist.com slash podcast offer. And don't forget to tell them a COVID-sniffing dog sent ya. <laughs> the producers are the fabulous Jason Hoskin, the amazing Abby Soye Dairo, and the editor is the fantastic Sandra Shmueli. I'm the ordinary Kenneth Couquier, and in dreary London, this is The Splendiferous Economist.